So uh, I'm Catherine Duncan-Jones, and I do have an opening question, which is, can you all hear me, particularly those at the back or the side or anyone who can't hear me? No, I saw a hand go up. Did that mean you couldn't hear me? She can. She can. Good, good. I think I can weigh in in that case. Um, so you'll see I've, uh, up on the screen there are two definitions of the word fool, and those are the particularly the second one is going to be most relevant this afternoon, but the first is also relevant. So here goes. In early modern England, the world in which we all live was often imagined not as a patch of ground or as a huge globe, but as something like what I'm standing on now, a platform stage on which each human being must, for a limited time, perform his or her part, comic, tragic, or both. Sir Walter Raleigh, an Oriel man, summed up this idea neatly in the final lines of his best-known poem, in which he compares the life of man to a, the, a performance of a play. Thus much we playing to our latest rest, only we die in earnest, that's no jest. And an unhappy character in a long poem by Sir Philip Sidney, a Christchurch man, complains that we human beings are all like players placed to fill a filthy stage, where change of thoughts one fool to other shows, and all but jests, save only sorrow's rage. Whatever other parts we may play in the course of our lives, all of us have at one time or another played the fool in the first few months of our life, possibly longer. In Shakespeare's tragedy, King Lear, the king, now half mad, reflects on the fact that every human being's first utterance is a cry. When we are born, we cry that we are come to this great stage of fools. Or, minus the theatrical metaphor, a modern version of this truism is, there's one born every minute, i.e. another human being who is, by definition, a fool. As adults, we may like to believe that we have outgrown the innate folly of infancy and youth. But for certain individuals in earlier times, foolery was not merely a state of being, but a whole way of life and a means of living. But very few professional fools enjoyed secure, lifelong employment as fools. One who did was the single most successful fool in 16th century England, Will Summers, who was in the service of Henry VIII. You see him with Henry VIII, I think, here, from 1535. Summers continued as a court fool in the retinues of Edward VI and Mary Tudor, and extraordinarily even lived long enough to attend the coronation of Elizabeth I in 1559. Summers, however, appears to have been a fool natural or simpleton rather than an artful performer. He was a fool in the OED sense 1A of the two I had up on the screen earlier. There's no evidence that Summers ever made a living in any way other than by closely attending on a Tudor monarch. This was extremely unusual. 
most 16th century fools, even the most brilliant ones, needed to earn money from some other professional skill, craft or trade, quite apart from their expertise in making people laugh. There were three fools who were important to Shakespeare. They were Richard Tarleton, William Kemp and Robert Armin. Each of these three had distinctive skills that enabled him to make some sort of living quite apart from his comic gifts. Each had what would now be called a day job, or even several day jobs. Before exploring these three men's connections to Shakespeare, I want to say something about their day jobs, the more mundane crafts, trades and skills that helped these men to keep afloat financially at times when performed foolery, which was most in demand at holiday seasons such as Hallowmas, Twelfth Night, Shrovetide and Whitson, when those were out of season or patrons were out of humour or the theatres closed, there were many reasons, many things that could put fools out of business temporarily. Richard Tolton appears to have started life as an apprentice water bearer in the City of London or else as a poorly paid, paid apprentice to some um, other, other trade who at the same time eked out a rather miserable living as a part-time water bearer. There's a recent history of water bearers which shows that among the many specialised trades, they have just been recognised, I think, as City, City of London Company number, as it were, 210. I mean, very, very, only very recently has the status of people who supply water to the city being recognised. Um, among the many specialised trades that kept the City of London ticking over from day to day, water bearing carried very low status. Their work was necessary but poorly rewarded. Few city households in 16th century England had piped water. Most relied on deliveries of water carried by water bearers in specially made tankards tapered containers. You can see a heavy container held by this almost staggering young man in the picture. Um, tapered containers with stoppers, each of which held a minimum of six gallons of water, sometimes I think eight or ten, so extremely heavy to carry through the uneven and dirty streets of London. The water had been drawn free of charge from one of London's public conduits or water fountains were two particularly large and elaborately decorated fountains in Cornhill. Um, the usual payment for delivery of a single tankard full of water was just one penny, so it's pretty modest. You have to make a lot of journeys to make any kind of decent living. Water bearing was ideally a job for a young, fit man with a strong back and shoulders and plenty of physical stamina for frequent journeys to the water, water conduits for refills followed by porterage of the full tankard, preferably without spilling any, to the customer's house. The single image that we have of Richard Tolton says that he was, suggests that he was physically well suited to this work, being solidly built and broad-shouldered. And in a moment, I shall discuss a Shakespeare passage that may allude to Tolton's proficiency in carrying heavy loads on his shoulders. Later in life, alongside his work as a comic performer, both in the playhouses, at court and elsewhere, Tarleton acquired two formal qualifications. 
These qualifications brought him further money, status, and useful connections, in addition to what he gained from comic performance and very strong favor with Queen Elizabeth. For much of his life, Tarleton seems to have owned and managed several taverns, one in Colchester and two, or possibly even more than two, in the city of London in Shoreditch, near the Curtain Theatre. In September 1584, Tarleton became a freeman of the Vintners Company, a mutually beneficial relationship, both for the clown and for the Vintners, I imagine. The Vintners presumably hoped to secure Tarleton as a star performer at some of their regular and very splendid feasts, while Tarleton acquired enhanced status as a freeman of one of the wealthiest and I assume the most convivial of the city companies. And the wine trade was also obviously closely linked to what is now, I think, oddly referred to as the entertainment industry, um, which we might also call the catering industry, certainly closely connected in Elizabethan time. Um, secondly, in the last year of his life, in June 1587, Tarleton became a certified master of, fen master of fence, that is, a master of sword play. This last qualification had even more obvious usefulness, both on stage and off, given the high incidence of sword fights in Elizabethan drama, as well as armed scuffles in the streets of London. Many actors were killed by fellow actors in scuffles in the street. Ben Johnson, who some of you may remember, killed a fellow actor, and there's really a very high incidence of fatal encounters between actors and other actors. So Tolton, in terms of his career, can be labelled thus, water bearer, comic actor, vintner, swordsman. William Kemp's talents were, in Monty Python's phrase, something completely different. While Tolton was stocky and strong, perhaps something of a prize fighter in physique, Kemp was lithe and athletic with long legs, a brilliant dancer, a long-distance sprinter, and a performer of amazing leaps. His physical fitness, probably combined with useful smatterings of languages other than English, led to his frequent employment as a messenger or letter-bearer, who carried often very important, uh, politically important bundles of letters between England and the continent. He was exceptionally well-traveled, having, in the course of his life, numerous spells in the Netherlands, in Denmark, in France, Germany, and Italy, often as a valued member of a nobleman's retinue, sometimes as leader of a playing company, sometimes more or less solo. Kemp first comes to view in 1585 as part of the large retinue of the Queen's favorite Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester, when the latter was posted as leader of a military mission to the Netherlands to support Dutch resistance to Spanish rule. Three records of really remarkably large payments made to Kemp date from these parents, this, from this period. Two of the pay payments were made by Dutch noblemen, in one case documented as a reward for a spectacular leap over a ditch or dike, and I'm sure some, you're, most of you are familiar with the great dikes that prevent the Netherlands from sinking entirely into the sea. Kemp was clearly a champion jumper. One of his last documented stunts occurred in Norwich in 1599 when, 
on the completion of his nine days of dancing all the way from London to Norwich, he leapt over the high church wall of St. John Maddermarket in triumphant celebration of the completion of his sponsored dance from London to Norwich. The fact that Kemp's gifts were more physical than verbal evidently enabled him to, to delight audiences who had little or no English. Also, as I shall show when I turn to his connections with Shakespeare, Kemp's day job as a messenger and letter bearer informed many of the roles that he performed on stage in which he was very often a messenger but a very bad and inefficient one. Robert Armin, fool number three, was different again. His gifts were far more cerebral than those of either Tolton or Kemp. Physically, he seems to have been small, possibly even stunted in appearance. He evidently had a good education in his native King's Lynn and was fluent in both Latin and Italian. As a boy, he studied a rather elite craft. I think his um, apprenticeship was paid for by a his father, who was a wealthy tailor from King's Lynn, a rather elite craft that was potentially extremely profitable. Aged 18, he was apprenticed to a leading London goldsmith who was master of the Queen's Mint at the Tower of London. This highly specialised craft required an apprenticeship of a full 11 years rather than the normal seven. However, some years before he completed this service, Armin had got to know Richard Tolton, who allegedly, allegedly nominated the boy as his heir, saying, thou shalt enjoy my clown suit after me. This suggests that Armin already revealed talent as a fool in the mid-1580s, as Tolton died in 1588. After experience with various other playing companies, Armin joined Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, sometime in 1599 to 1600. As I hope to show in the last section of this lecture, the availability of Armin as a playing company colleague enabled Shakespeare to compose diverse and substantial roles for fools, more extended, with long parts to learn, altogether less physical and more verbal than the fool roles played by, 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 by Kemp. So I'm now going to turn to the connection, connections of each of these three fools to Shakespeare, all of which I think are interesting. I think we can be confident that Shakespeare knew Richard Tarleton and witnessed some of his performance. He may even have performed alongside him in the mid-1580s, if as seems highly likely, where he was for a while, um, that, that is Shakespeare as, as well as Tarleton, if, if Shakespeare was for a while a member of the Queen's Men, whose star performer was Tarleton. However, because of the notorious dearth of documentary evidence, relating to Shakespeare's life and activities between 1585, when his wife gave birth to twins, and the early 1590s, that is, those celebrated lost years in Shakespeare's life. The precise nature of Shakespeare's contact with Tolton is a matter of conjecture. After Tolton's sudden death on the 3rd of September, 1588, there was an unprecedented and prolonged outpouring of tributes to him. I don't think any clown, as far as I know, in Western Europe ever provoked so many laments as Tolton did. Several writers drew attention to his trademark stunt 
of suddenly peeping out his head from behind a screen or tapestry, which apparently could provoke unstoppable bursts of laughter, sometimes making it impossible to proceed with the play because the audience just went on and on and on laughing. Eric Morecambe occasionally achieved something like that. <laughs> Other tributes suggested comfortingly that Tarleton wasn't really dead at all, but somehow just hiding behind the arras, still playing the fool in a festive and Protestant version of purgatory. In Hamlet, I believe Shakespeare contributed to this ongoing stream of posthumous treatment tributes to Tarleton. It's often regarded as a critical truism that Hamlet is a play that has no fool's role, with a witty prince himself generating most of a theatre audience's laughs. But strictly speaking, that's not true. In all three of the earliest printed texts of Hamlet, the character who is described as gravedigger in most modern editions is designated as a clown. No early edition calls this character gravedigger. The first quarto has the stage direction, enter clown and an other. While the second quarto and the first folio texts have the stage direction, enter two clowns. The senior clown is busily occupied in digging a grave quipping, singing, and ordering a drink while he does so. Eventually, Hamlet and Horatio appear, the former having just returned from England, that notorious land of madmen and fools, where everyone thought he would be very much at home. Ignorant at this point of the identity of the person for whom the grave is being dug, Hamlet immediately jokes and quips with the clown, in a battle of wits in which prince and gravedigger seem well matched. And finally, in one of the most celebrated moments in the whole of Shakespeare's oeuvre, I think it's really up there with the balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet interrogates the clown afresh. My companion is a handmaid rather than a clown. Hamlet, whose skull was this? This, a plague on him, a mad rogues it was. He poured once a whole flagon of Rhenish of my head. Why, do you not know him? This was one Yorick skull. Was this? I prithee let me see it. Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio, a fellow of infinite mirth. He hath carried me twenty times upon his back. Here hung those lips that I have kissed a hundred times, and to see, now they abhor me. Where's your jests now, Yorick? Your flashes of merriment? Now go to my lady's chamber and bid her paint herself an inch thick. To this she must come, Yorick. Here, I believe, we can see Robert Armin as the clown, sharing with Richard Burbage, who was undoubtedly the first performer of Hamlet, with Richard Burbage as Hamlet, their recollections of the now long-dead Tarleton. In a grim reenactment of Tarleton's trademark stunt of suddenly peeping out his head, the jester's skull is raised up from below for the whole theatre audience to see. The clown's recollection of the moment when, perhaps you'd say it again, handmaid? He poured once a whole flagon of Rhenish on my head. Suggests a festive parody of baptism in which the food and wine merchant, Tolton, christened the younger, smaller fool as his chosen heir. And Hamlet's more detailed recollections of poor Yorick or Yorick can also be seen as alluding to Tarleton's specific gifts. 
His strong, broad shoulders are here evoked as having carried the young prince 20 times, that is, on many occasions, too many to enumerate precisely, on his broad back. Hamlet's direction, go to my lady's chamber, glances at Tarleton's exceptional gift for entertaining well-born ladies from the Queen downwards. On at least one occasion, she asked for him to be taken away because she was laughing so much. It doesn't actually say she was wetting herself, it almost implies it. He was so good at making women laugh. And the name Yorick, iterated four times in the Q1 text and further underlined in its rhyme with thick, let her paint herself an inch thick, seems to me to glance at your wick, Tarleton. Obviously the brilliance of this famous scene entirely transcends any personal illusions that may have been discerned by the play's earliest audiences. We've all, I imagine, seen performances of Hamlet in which, which this longish scene, usually placed immediately after the interval, has been notably powerful in its progress in leisurely stages from relaxed, chatty, comedy and back chat towards intense emotions and it finally extreme violence, physical violence, when Hamlet finally learns that the grave has been dug for Ophelia, leaps into it and tries to fight with Laertes. The fact that Burbage leapt into the grave is also in, on record as having happened in early performances. It doesn't always happen now. For those fortunate early audiences, I believe the passage quoted also functioned as a specific tribute to the dead Tarleton. And in that sense, even though Tarleton appears on stage only in the form of a skull, Richard Tarleton can be viewed as the grand original of Shakespeare's Fools. Because this is an alumni event, before moving on to discuss William Kemp, I want to mention Tarleton's connections with Oxford. Both of the playing companies of which Tarleton was undoubtedly a member, Sussex's men and the Queen's men, did a great deal of touring, and this often included Oxford. Sometime between 1577 and 1581, Tarleton seems to perform prominently in Oxford, probably in Christchurch, whose large hall lent itself particularly well to performances of plays. On this occasion, however, the toffee-nosed undergraduates thought they were too good for Tarleton, or Tarleton was too coarse for them. They greeted Tarleton's appearance on stage with hissing, perhaps believing his style of humour to be too crude for their well-educated tastes. But, as so often, Tarleton almost always had a way of seeing off those who didn't find him funny or didn't like him. Tarleton saw them off as William Withy, a student of Christchurch, recorded in his notebook. Tarleton, being hissed at Oxen, potted out these verses. I am not in that golden land where Jason won the fleece, but I am in that hissing land where freshmen play the geese. <laughs> Tarleton was celebrated for his skill in its temporary versifying, which he very often used to assert control over restless or hostile auditor auditors. He certainly used it on one occasion to the Lord Chamberlain himself. Incidentally, um, with his odd-seeming word, potted, was, I discover, a carefully chosen technical term, which I think you now have up on the screen. Yes, it can mean to outdo, outwit, to deceive, and just as aptly to reply to one verse with another, to cap verses. 
um, Withy, who was mainly studying men medicine, was extremely learned, and it's clearly a learned term, potting, though it was fairly new to me when I looked at Withy's notebook. It's interesting that Oxford's callow freshmen, mostly what we now call teenagers, thought themselves too cool for Tolton's humour, while the more mature Withy, who was a student of Christchurch, that is what in other colleges is called a fellow, and was in his early 30s by then, clearly esteemed him highly. Tolton's gifts were also appreciated by a notorious Cambridge academic, Gabriel Harvey, who later recorded an extensive conversation with Tolton about Tolton's famous play of the Seven Deadly Sins, which Tolton uh, urged Harvey to see performed in Oxford. This fascinating dialogue, reported by Harvey, is too long to quote today, but it bears witness both to Tolton's quick wit and to his familiarity with academic gossip, both in Cambridge and in Oxford, because the um, culmination of the dialogue uh, uh, depends on knowing some Cambridge gossip, which Tolton, as well as Harvey, did. In the case of William Kemp, to whom I now turn, we lack specific datable evidence of his presence in Oxford. However, since he was a notoriously active traveller, both in England and on the continent, there seems little doubt that on various occasions his nimble feet must have brought him here. The Shakespeare plays in which he appears to have performed include Titus Andronicus, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Romeo and Juliet, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Love's Labour's Lost, and The Merchant of Venice and plays by other writers in which he performed include Ben Jonson's Every Man and His Humour, where he acted alongside Shakespeare, and a play of uncertain authorship, Thomas Lord Cromwell. Clearly there isn't time to discuss all of these, so I'm going to glance just at two of Kemp's Shakespeare roles, which illustrate his distinctive limitations and his great strengths. First, Kemp's limitations, which were considerable. In a later play, in which Kemp appears as himself and under his own name, John Day's The Travels of the Three English Brothers, 1607, Kemp describes himself as somewhat hard of study, that is, not good at memorising long parts. He was happiest when relying mainly on his own extemporary wit. Many of the clown roles of which Kemp appears uh, to, to have been the original performer, have only a, a small number of lines and cues, and many of the lines assigned to the clown played by Kemp are extremely simple. In the first scene that I'm going to discuss in a moment, the clown performed by Kemp speaks only eight times, and only one of his speeches is composed of more than one or two sentences. But, second, Kemp's outstanding strengths he was both extremely musical and a spectacularly good dancer. He seems to have found memorising lines somewhat easier when they took the form of rhyming couplets, and easier still when the rhyming couplets were to be sung rather than spoken. As an actor, he was clearly at his best when performing directly to an audience rather than interacting with on-stage characters performing scripted lines. Many of the roles that appear to have been Kemp's provided scope for this. My first example of a Kemp role occurs in the early tragedy Titus Andronicus, 
which Shakespeare seems to have co-authored with George Peel in 1592 to three. Grim and brutal though this play is, there is abundant evidence that it was extremely popular, both with playgoers and readers. Three early printed editions survive, one in only a single copy, so there may have been further printings of which no exemplar remains. The clown scene in Titus, which in most modern productions is, in my experience, totally cut, but Shakespeare had to find a role for the clown. The clown scene, usually, if Kemp was there, he would have wanted to use him. The clown scene in Titus is short and essentially self-contained. It functions as a comic tailpiece to Act 4, Scene 3, in which the old war hero, Titus Andronicus, is crazy with rage and grief. He has received no redress for the terrible wrongs done to his offspring, the rape and mutilation of his daughter Lavinia, whose hands are cut off and tongue cut out, and the wrongful execution of two of his sons. Finding no justice in ungrateful Rome, Titus turns in desperation to the higher, highest court of all on Mount Olympus. He attaches letters of petition to ten Olympian gods to arrows, which are shot skywards to Mount Olympus. Abruptly, however, the tone changes from grim obsession to something more like farce, as an unnamed clown arrives, whom the deranged Titus, of course, believes to be a messenger from Jove himself. Enter the clown with a basket and two pigeons in it. Titus, news, news from heaven. Marcus, the post is come. Sewer, what tidings? Have you any letters? Shall I have justice? What says Jupiter? Oh. The gibbet maker, he says he hath taken them down again, for a man must not be hanged till the next week. But what says Jupiter, I ask thee? Oh, alas, sir, I know not Jupiter. I never drank with him in all my life. Why, villain, not, not, not thou not the carrier? Why, of my pigeons, sir, nothing else. Why, didst thou not come from heaven? From heaven? Alas, sir, I never came there. God forbid I should be so bold to press to heaven in my young days. Why, I'm going with my pigeons to the tribunal plebs to take up a matter of a brawl betwixt my uncle and one of the emperor's men. This unnamed, that's about half of the scene. There aren't very many clown lines, but such as they are, as you've heard, they're, they're very good. This unnamed and rustic-seeming clown has apparently never even heard of the great god Jupiter, mishearing the name as Jupiter, our maker of gibbets and gallows and assuming that the man Titus mentions must be one of his own familiar drinking companions. The whole scene, which is a bit too long to quote in full, completely changes the tone of the play, providing a theatre audience, when it is included, as I believe it should be, with just a few minutes of welcome comic relief before they encounter yet more horrors, cannibalism and other things, and long anguished speeches in the final act of Titus Andronicus. However, in contrast to two other clown scenes that I'm about to discuss, the Titus scene doesn't seem to offer any scope for singing or dancing, which were, of course, Kemp's forte. The play I now want to examine is Romeo and Juliet. This too, of course, was hugely popular with Shakespeare's contemporaries and in very sharp contrast to Titus Andronicus, I think one can say it's still extremely popular today. Once again, Kemp's role is that of a messenger. 
His essential incompetence as such is both a source of humour and a key factor in the advancement of the narrative. Old Capulet gives Peter, described simply as clown in early texts, the job of delivering invitations to a feast at his house. As Peter can't read very well, he ends up asking Romeo to read out all the names of the invited guests to whom his letters are meant to be delivered. As a result of this, Romeo and his friends learn about the Capulet feast and decide to gatecrash it, disguised as maskers. That gatecrashing, in turn, leads, as we all know, to Romeo's first meeting with Juliet. But here, as in other scenes in which the clown appears, the lines assigned to Peter are mostly short and to the point. However, I believe that his role in relation to the play's entertainment value was pivotal. At the Capulet Feast, the short stage direction, music plays and they dance, is clearly the trigger for some elaborate dancing, originally both choreographed and led by Kemp, whose expertise here was outstanding. Old Capulet and his cousin converse during some of the dance, but not necessarily throughout, and the scope in those five words, music plays and they dance, for a pretty elaborate display of, display of dancing, probably of a festive character, such as a galliard, possibly even several festive dances, perhaps lasting as long as four or five minutes. After all, this feast is supposed to celebrate Juliet's imminent betrothal to Paris. Here is Kemp's jig, which may have been the kind of music that was played. a nice pace, hasn't it? In the next scene in which Peter appears, accompanying the nurse on her visit to Romeo, he speaks only twice. This is another example of Kemp being happier with not too many lines to learn. First, just to construe something the nurse says in a typically bawdy manner, and then later, when she's trying to get, get him to get her back home, to utter the single word, Anon! Since Kemp was undoubtedly the original performer here, since at two points in early printings of the play, the speech heading Will or Will Kemp appears in place of Peter or serving man, we may wonder why he was given so little to do. However, in addition to what I assume to be his leading role as both choreographer and lead dancer at Campulet's house, he makes a major appearance, often I think again played down in modern productions of Romeo and Juliet. He makes a major appearance in Act 4, Scene 5. This is the tragic scene that opens with the nurse finding Juliet apparently dead in her bed. Peter and three instrumentalists have been hired to perform festive music for the morning of Juliet's wedding day, which is of course no longer wanted. 
Faith, we may put up our pipes and be gone, say, say, the, say, say Kemp's colleagues rather miserably. They're not going to get paid either. The music originally called for is very aptly a dance tune called Heartsease, whose title speaks of the broken heart's need for consolation. Um, there are both, both words and a tune surviving for Heartsease. But despite the grim and unexpected news of Juliet's death, Peter Stroke Will Kemp is absolutely determined that some music should be played. And when the other performers refuse, he says, I will give you the minstrel. He begins to sing a madrigal, which opens, when griping grief griefs the heart doth wound, which, of which also we have a text. And in early performances, there was probably an option for Kemp to sing the whole song rather than just the two lines recorded in the playtext. Songs in Shakespeare texts are generally represented only by a couple of lines. But as Tiffany Stern has shown, the performer whose job it was to sing a song normally held a set separate piece of paper with the full words on it. And those words only very rarely got incorporated into a printed text of the play. So the original substance of Peter's role in Romeo and Juliet was probably far greater than it appears from the printed text, since he almost certainly developed both the dance at Capulet's house and the melancholy music for When Griping Griefs that follows Juliet's apparent death and turned these into substantial and memorable performances. Like, like most of the really good clowns, he was a scene stealer and a threat to the other actors because audiences found him so good. Because so many elements of Kemp's performances were improvised and or consisted of singing and dancing rather than of spoken lines, we can never hope to recover their full flavor but there is a madrigal by Thomas Wilkes, Bachelor of Music, New College, 1601, that I think suggests the pace and light-footedness of Kemp's musical routines, including his ast astonishing expertise in twiddling round on one toe, as often in Elizabethan songs, and apparent nonsense words I think are not nonsense. I think they're choreographing some very clever twiddling.
So, rather sadly, twiddly on one toe, exit William Kemp. Um, as for Robert Armin, I've already touched on his gift for quick-witted dialogue when I discussed the grave-digging scene in Hamlet. It was highly apt to have Armin play this role, since Richard Tarleton himself made Armin his adopted son to succeed him. According to the narrative account in Tarleton's Jests, Tarleton first encountered Armin, being then a wag or young boy, when he was running an errand for his goldsmith master to a tavern in Gracechurch Street, of which Tarleton was the landlord. The boy had chalked up some extemporary verses on a wainscot, to which Tarleton immediately chalked up with this, again, this skill in instant versification, chalked up this response, a wag thou art, none can prevent me, prevent thee. Let me divine as, as I am, so in time thou'lt be the Sam. My adopted son therefore be, to enjoy my clown suit after me. Not wonderful meter, but quite good just off the cuff. Young Armin immediately became devoted to Tarleton and studied his performances closely for several years, until at last, some time after Tarleton's death, Private practice brought him, that is Armin, to present playing, and th at this hour he performs the same, where at the globe in Bankside men may see him. Tarleton's dress seems to have been first printed in 1600 when the Globe Theatre was new and Armin was a new clown in the company, and belongs to the time when Kemp had, had left the Chamberlain's men in order to perform semi-independently, semi both at home and abroad. So the passage quoted, um, where at the Globe in, at the in Bankside men may see him, you'll buy a little book of jokes and you say, it, it says, and for more of this, go to the Globe and see it properly. Um, it was extremely topical when it first appeared, functioning as a useful advertisement for the fun that could, could be currently enjoyed at the Globe Theatre. Though Armin may indeed have been Tolton's theatrical heir, he was actually a very different kind of performer. He closely approximated to what we might now classify as a professional actor, rather than a free spirit or loose canon, as Tolton had been. Armin was able to memorize substantial parts, whether in verse or prose, and he had a positively donish gift, which we see in the Hamlet scene, a donish gift for relentless quibbling and disputation. It seems likely that he could put on different voices and accents, and it's quite certain that he could sing. In short, he was versatile and well able to re render the whole gamut of fool types, from simpletons to clever dicks. And his small, small stature may have equipped him particularly well for the fragile, almost childlike, truth-telling fool of King Lear. As, as well as performing newly written uh, roles in Shakespeare's latest plays, Armin also took over some of the Shakespeare roles previously played by Kemp. We know this from a passage in his delightful book called A Nest of Ninnies, 1608. He ded dedicated A Nest of Ninnies to the generous gentleman of Oxenford, Cambridge and the Inns of Court, and appears to have performed in all three locations. 
as he re records in, in the dedicatory epistle, epistle. I have seen the stars at midnight, a bit of an echo, we have heard the chimes at midnight. I have seen the stars at midnight in your societies, that is Oxford and Cambridge and the Inns of Court, and might have commenced, like that is, taken a degree, might have commenced like an ass as I was, but I'd lacked liberty in that. Yet I was admitted in Oxford to be of Christ's church. Well, they of all souls gave aim, such as knew me, remember my meaning. The phrase, like an ass, indicates that Robert, um, Robert Armin had performed the role of Dogbury in Much Ado About Nothing, the dim-witted constable who is so determined to be written down an ass. And I think he's going on to say that while he was warmly received when he performed in Christchurch, the snooty audience in All Souls threw things at him. I can't think what else they of All Souls gave aim, such as knew me remember my meaning. It took me some time to work out that probably is what, it, he's, what he means. Virtually the full range of Armin's talents appears to have been showcased in what was possibly his earliest role for the Lord Chamberlain's men, that of the court jester touchstone in As You Like It. Showcasing the gifts of the company's newly recruited fool in the company's newly built, newly built Globe Playhouse may indeed have been part of the raison d'etre for Shakespeare's creation of Touchstone. The name carries an allusion to Armin's earlier profession, for a touchstone was a form of black basalt stone which was used to test the purity of gold. And in contrast to the remarkably small number of scripted lines generally assigned to the fools played by Kemp, Touchstone has a substantial scripted role, 299 lines in all, second only to the 318 lines spoken by Feste in Twelfth Night, also almost certainly a role first played by Robert Armin. From the moment he first enters in Act One, Scene Two, Touchstone quips and quibbles in what I've called his rather donnish manner with other characters. His first interchange of banter is with Celia and Rosalind and concerns modes of swearing by non-existent entities in a quasi-legalistic style that is wholly unlike the manner either of Tolton or Kemp. And Touchstone holds his own equally well with the comparably clever, with comparably clever opponents, particularly the melancholy Jaquies, and also with clod-hopping rustics, such as the elderly shepherd Corin. Quite late on in the play, the opening of Act Five, we see Touchstone's sophisticated rendition of a highly traditional fool scenario, one that provided matter for many of the jigs or short, bawdy, comical playlets regularly performed at the end of full-length plays, as they, apparently at the end of tragedies as well as comedies. In the formulaic scenario of the jig, the dominant comic performer usually steals the wife or mistress of an inferior clown, sometimes a jealous husband, sometimes, as in the example we're just about to look at, a would-be would husband or fiancé. In this version of, of the jig plot, Touchstone, as both a quick-witted man and a courtier, patronises and finally outwits a rustic simpleton. I've chosen this scene for quotation of many good Touchstone scenes in As You Like It, 
partly because I think it's just possible, in fact I privately believe it, that the original performer of the simpleton William, a tiny but memorable role, may have been a man with the same Christian name who was also born in the forest of Arden, while Shakespeare doing a Hitchcock here in William. Touchstone is already in the company of the country girl Audrey, whose intended husband then arrives. Enter William. It is meat and drink to me to see a clown. By my troth, we that have good wits have much to answer for. We shall be flouting, we cannot hold. Good evening, Audrey. Goody, good evening, William. And good evening to you, sir. Good evening, gentle friend. Cover thy head, cover thy head, nay, prithee be covered. How old are you, friend? Five and twenty, sir. A ripe age. Is thy name William? William, sir. A fair name. Was born in the forest here? Aye, sir, I thank God. Thank God, a good answer. Art rich? Faith, sir, so-so. So-so is good, very good, very excellent good, and yet it is not. It is but so-so. Art thou wise? Aye, sir, I have a pretty wit. Why, thou sayst well. I do now remember a saying, the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. By the end of this scene, as I'm sure you all remember, Touchstone has totally crushed and terrified the innocuous and unlearned William, who departs with a sad little line, would you like to do it? God rest you, Mary, sir. Leaving Touchstone triumphantly in the possession of Audrey. And perhaps it's time for me to exit likewise. Touchstone's typically clever remark that the wise man knows himself to be a fool takes us back to the point with which I opened. To be born human is to be born a fool, but only a small number of foolish humans such as Touchstone and indeed his creator, William Shakespeare, not only fully freely acknowledge their own folly, but are talented enough to make a good deal of money out of it. And now we see the lovely Thomas King as Touchstone. And that's it. If there are any questions or comments, I think we have a little bit of time. We do have a little bit of time.